Research, I'm Leonard Lopate. Sam Roberts has written about New York's past in his books, A History of New York and 27 Buildings and A History of New York and 101 Objects. And now he's given us a look at the city by profiling 31 of mostly little-known yet pivotal residents who made a difference at critical moments in its history from the colonial era to the present. The book, The New Yorker's 31 Remarkable People, 400 Years, and the Untold Biography of the World's Greatest City is published by Bloomsbury and brings San Roberts, who is a 50-year veteran of New York journalism, currently an obituaries reporter at the New York Times, where he was formerly the urban affairs correspondent. Welcome to our show. Leonard, thanks for inviting me. Is there a reason you use offbeat numbers, 27 buildings, 101 objects, now 31 people? I hate to admit I can't count. Uh, the, the 27 buildings was really supposed to be 25, and I miscounted. 101 sounded better than 100. Uh, the Smithsonian, I think, and the uh, British Museum had done a history of the world in 100 objects. I figured you couldn't possibly do New York City in 100. It would take at least 101. And uh, I found out that the pool of New Yorkers who had ever lived here was probably as high as a billion people. So I had a pretty big pool to choose from, and I had to narrow it down and somehow totally arbitrarily wound up with 31. That was as many as I could fit into this book. And not many of them famous. What criteria did you use to select your your subjects? Well, first of all, they had to be dead, uh, which eliminated uh, most people from the 20th century because, uh, Leonard, I figured that it's pretty hard these days to figure out who's going to be important, who's going to be considered transformative or emblematic of some sort of transformation uh, 50, 25, 100 years from now. So I thought it would be best to have people who no longer were with us. I wanted them to be quirky, people who were interesting to me, because I can't expect them to be interesting to readers if I didn't find them interesting. And also um, people who you pretty much never heard of, uh, people you would not find ordinarily in history books or guidebooks, and people who most uh, New Yorkers, uh, probably uh, other than you and me, or most of the cognoscenti, would never have heard of. Uh, there are a couple whose name you might know, uh, but they are in there for reasons you might not, not know. Uh, and the idea was to say, this is history in sort of a different framework. These are people who made a difference. Uh, it was Thomas Carlyle, the historian, who said, uh, history, the history of the world is but the biography of great men, also women, of course. But he said, how do you quantify that greatness? Is, is greatness the hero who led victorious armies over the Alps? Or is it the poor slob who invented the shovel or the spade? Well, you know, I try to point out in this book that uh, Greatness can be any number of things, and uh, people can be transformative in any number of ways. And everyone in this book uh, was somehow overlooked. Uh, most of them never got an obituary, uh, which is what I write now. And uh, I thought it was worth bringing them to people's attention because they are just intrinsically interesting stories. The first person you profile is John Coleman, the second mate on Henry Hudson's ship Half Moon, who was murdered in 1609. What were the circumstances of that crime, and was it the first recorded murder in what later became New York? Well, Leonard, you know, people ask me, how how could I possibly have stumbled across something like that? And it's a very good question. Uh, I was looking into uh, Henry Hudson's voyage for the 400th anniversary of his uh, voyage of discovery, discovery as far as Europeans were concerned, uh, to New York in 1609. And I said, I'm going to read the first mate's uh, diary, uh, his uh, chronicle of that trip. And in the course of reading it, in, in passing, uh, the first mate made reference to the murder of one of the crew members, John Coleman, as you say. And just makes a reference in passing to what appeared to be the first recorded murder, certainly of a European, uh, in the New York area. And he and was, and, I, and it was, uh, uh, although uh, there was hostility between the Dutch and the English who were aboard the, the ship, um, everyone assumed that Coleman had been killed by a Native American. Is this uh, an early example of racial profiling? 
Well, that's exactly it. What I wanted to show in the book is that history is a lot more complicated than we think it is. First of all, that was apparently the first case of uh, a recorded murder. And secondly, if you take a look at it through today's prism, uh, you could consider it a first case of racial profiling because everyone naturally blamed it on the Indians, on the Native Americans, uh, because the guy was killed with a, an arrow. Uh, you know, there's some circumstantial evidence. Uh, but in fact, John Coleman was English. He was hated by the Dutch crew. Uh, it was easy to blame the murder on the Indians. And in fact, when you look at it in retrospect, uh, he could easily have been set up. Uh, the murder could have been committed by the Dutch crew. Uh, it could have been blamed on the Indians when in fact they were possibly retaliating in self-defense. Uh, so there were a lot of mitigating factors that make us realize how complicated these situations are, whether it was in 1609 or whether it's in the 21st century. Another interesting story involves a merchant named Isaac Sears, who is instrumental in forming a group called the Sons of Liberty. That was in response to the Stamp Act of 1765? Yeah, one of the things that fascinated me uh, in researching the book, Leonard, is how New Yorkers so discount or are indifferent to our history. Uh, you know, places like uh, Boston, Philadelphia have sort of hijacked American history, whereas New Yorkers uh, are so consumed by the present or so consumed by the future uh, that we don't consider it. And, and you know what George Orwell said, he said, uh, who controls the past controls the future. And I think that's absolutely true, uh, certainly more today than, than ever. Uh, and America began in New York. Uh, and we tend to forget that, that, uh, you know, we look at those other cities that have great historical institutions. We have sort of buried our history. We have Francis Tavern. We have, of course, Federal Hall downtown. But we forget that New York was the first capital of this country. Uh, this is where George Washington was inaugurated as the first president, where the first Congress met, where the Bill of Rights was passed and sent to the states for ratification by that first Congress. And the Stamp Act Congress was held in New York City. Uh, and that was really the first act of rebellion against uh, Britain. And uh, that was before anything went on in, in Boston, in Philadelphia, in any of the other American colonies. And we forget, too, I don't want to make this too long-winded, but we forget, too, that New York was distinct from all the other American colonies for two reasons. One, it was the only one that was taken by the British by force in, when the Dutch were forced to surrender. And because it was a Dutch colony, it was the only one that was more diverse because the Dutch didn't come here to proselytize. They didn't come here to free, uh, escape religious persecution. They came here to make money. And if you didn't get in their way, you were more or less accepted. Now, if you want to be an idealist, you can call it uh, tolerance. If you want to be a cynic, you can call it indifference. But it made New York distinct from every other place in what became the United States. And it defined New York to the rest of the country, and it defined New York and America to the rest of the world. What can we learn about the American opposition to British rule by studying Isaac Sears rather than the more well-known patriots like George Washington, Paul Revere, and Patrick Henry? Well, Leonard, what fascinated me in working on the book is you discover that uh, a man like Leonard Sears defied the stereotype of rabble in arms. Uh, he was a well-to-do merchant. Uh, he made a lot of money, uh, certainly made a lot of money uh, later during the revolution. Uh, and he was uh, he was looking at, at the revolution and looking at the rebellion to British rule in two terms. One was an economic one. Uh, he didn't like the fact that a tax was being imposed on the colonists, uh, even though that tax was being imposed for their own protection, arguably, uh, for British troops being stationed during the French and Indian War. Uh, you can make a big argument uh, that while he claimed, like a lot of other people, that he didn't like taxation without representation, that that tax was being imposed by a faraway parliament in which the colonists had no representation, no voice, uh, you wonder just how receptive he would have been to the same tax if it had been imposed uh, 
by American representatives. And remember, who had the right to vote at that time? It wasn't women. It wasn't blacks. It wasn't uh, Native Americans. It wasn't people without property. So if a elected representatives in the colonies had voted for that tax, not many people would have been represented in approving that tax anyway. But uh, interestingly, so, he came to be reelected to the New York State Assembly after he died. After he was dead. Now, that set a precedent in terms of elections in New York State, didn't it? Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, hanky-panky at the polls. Uh, he did. He went to China in part to escape pro prosecution for dealing in uh, in Revolutionary War debt and uh, uh, things like that. And uh, he decided that he would be safer there uh, from the long arm of the law. And while he was there, as you say, he got reelected to the state legislature, even though the election took place after he had died. Uh, people, of course, uh, didn't know that because of the uh, slowness of communication back then. But uh, it set a precedent in people uh, defying the election odds in New York State. As I mentioned at the beginning, you've profiled very few people whose names will be remembered by most of your readers, maybe Tex and Jinx Falkenberg among them, but especially John Jay. You made an exception with John Jay. Now, New Yorkers lived under British occupation for seven years during the American Revolution. What shape was the city in at the end of the war, and what role did Jay play in reviving it after the British left? Well, Leonard, almost everyone knows John Jay, or at least the name John Jay. Yeah. John Jay was a, a high school. Governor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, John Jay, uh, of course, was the governor of New York State. He was the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, but I included in... He was a governor his, of New York State as well. Yeah, that's right. And he emancipated the slaves, uh, slaver, abolished slavery in New York. Of course, not till 1827, but at least he did that. Uh but I included him in the book, The New Yorkers, for a totally different reason, a reason I had never heard of. And when I looked at biographies of John Jay, it was a reason that uh, very few other people seem to have mentioned either. As you said, after seven years of brutal British occupation, New York was tent city by 1783. Most, most of it, a large portion of it, had been basically demolished, was in ruins, was it embers from the great fire of 1776. And uh, it saw no signs of, of uh, generating any sort of a comeback. There was no reason for it to uh, be revived at that point by 1783, by evacuation day, which was the day that British troops finally left New York City. John Jay uh, was nominated by the Congress in 1785, the Confederation Congress, to become Secretary of State. He was a member of Congress then. He had just returned from negotiating the treaty with Britain uh, in Europe, and they nominated him to be Secretary of State. And he said, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, I'm not going to be Secretary of State unless, unless you move the capital of these United States from Trenton, New Jersey, to my hometown of New York City. Mm. And Congress agreed. This was the only time a congressman hijacked the placement of the capital of the United States to his own job preference. And they moved it. And from, from 1785 to 1789, the capital of the Confederation Congress was in New York City at what became Federal Hall, from 1789 to 1790, after the Constitution was ratified, the capital of the United States of America, the first federal capital, was in Federal Hall in New York City. And because those uh, five or six years the capital was in New York, that revived New York City. And John Jay, in addition to the fact that he was governor, in addition to the fact that he was Supreme Court Chief Justice, deserved an enormous amount of credit for saving New York City after the revolution. Sam Roberts is my guest today on Leonard Lopin at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. His latest book, the one we're discussing, is The New Yorkers, 31 Remarkable People, 400 Years in the Untold Biography of the World's Greatest City, published by Bloomsbury. 
Civil engineers are rarely acknowledged in the history of the city, even though a large city couldn't exist without infrastructure and transportation. Is that why you include a chapter on William Wilgus, the chief engineer for the New York Central Railroad? You know, you wonder about a guy like him. I mean, this guy was, you know, purely an engineer and a brilliant engineer. But what he did uh, was rebuild Grand Central Terminal. Uh, it was a Grand like Central Depot. Is it was it Grand Central the same Depot. As Grand Central uh, Terminal? Pretty much the same location. But what he came up with was the idea, and this saved railroad officials from criminal prosecution because there had been so many train crashes as a result of the smoke and soot and density and noise in the tunnels uh, that led to the open train yards at Park Avenue, north of 42nd Street, uh, that they were going to be criminally liable. The owners they were called of the Death New Valley, York, weren't they? It was Death Valley, indeed. The owners of the New York Central Railroad were going to be criminally liable for the accidents, the fatal accidents, that took place there. And he said, electrify the railroad, a big experiment, a big cost at the time. But he said, listen, if we electrify the railroad, it means the trains can run underground, which means we can deck over Park Avenue, deck over these open rail valleys that are in the middle of the east side of Manhattan. And if we deck them over, think of what we can do. We can build on top of them. We can take that space and monetize the air. And thus was the birth of air rights. Uh, and that was an unprecedented uh, urban development as far as uh, Grand Central was concerned. So uh, Grand Central transformed New York and transformed America in terms of architecture, in terms of urban planning, in terms ultimately of the landmarks law, in terms of uh, A. Philip Randolph and the birth of the sleeping car porters union, uh, all sorts of things. And what it did in a way that Penn Station was never able to do and what the original Grand Central uh, Depot was never able to do was it transplanted the center of gravity of Manhattan from downtown to midtown. 42nd Street became the new center of gravity uh, bringing in all those suburban commuters. In fact, the whole notion of commuting was born at Grand Central. Uh, the commute, the term was born at Grand Central. Uh, and all those hotels, those office buildings, those theaters and everything else developed, thrived in the midtown of Manhattan, largely because of the placement of Grand Central and William Wilgus's idea of placing it there and electrifying the railroad. He was credited with uh, the station's double stack track design and the third rail system. That's, That's right. Impressive. Uh, and we don't remember his name. Uh, is that partly because he was also blamed for a fatal accident in 1907? That's absolutely true. And like so many of the people in this book, his achievements went unheralded. So even when the terminal was dedicated, in 1913, he wasn't even acknowledged. Uh, and it's fascinating when you look back at, you know, I write obituaries now for the Times, and you look back and wonder if the obituaries had been written at the time people had died, as opposed to the time we now can reflect at what their achievements have been. Uh, Wilgus was ignored. Uh, people didn't realize how significant his achievement was even at the time, much less in retrospect. Uh, and he had a great uh, impact on the railroad, a great impact on transportation, and an enormous impact on urban development. Uh, ultimately, uh, the whole issue of air rights alone, which turned out to be worth billions and billions of dollars. The, the Times ran uh, a series called Overlooked, uh, Obituaries of People, uh, who hadn't gotten them when they died. Were you part of that? Did you contribute to that? I did indeed. That was a, uh, 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 a series conceived by Amy Padnini at the Times, a terrific idea, uh, one that is going to eventually be a book, uh, possibly a documentary as well. And I have contributed a couple of those. And one or two uh, uh, chapters in this book are going to be included as some of the uh, upcoming overlooked obituaries 
in the Times as well. Many people pass the municipal building on Center Street without noticing the 20-foot-tall gilded statue on top. And those who do are almost certainly unaware that a real person posed as the barefoot woman balancing on a globe. How did Audrey Munson become a sculptor's model? Well, Leonard, she is one of my favorite people of the book. Audrey Munson uh, was supposedly discovered. She is a person of great legend uh, by a passing photographer while she was walking uh, in Midtown with her mother. She became a sculptor's model for Isadora Conti. Uh, if you look all around Manhattan, you can see her face, although you won't see her name and you won't necessarily recognize her. The three graces in the old Astor Hotel, memory uh, honoring Isidore Strauss and his wife uh, uh, when they sank uh, of the Titanic, the main monument uh, on the southwest corner of Central Park. Daniel she also, Francis, she uh, posed for the, uh, the the statue on the U.S. Custom House, the 42nd Street Public Library, the entrance to the Manhattan Bridge, and the monument at Columbus Circle. That's right. Now, uh, her in particular, was it just that if you were an artist who were going to do a public statue, you said, well, I wonder what Audrey Munson is doing these days? Well, she apparently, you know, if you talk about Helen of Troy as the face that launched a thousand ships, uh, Audrey Munson uh, was a face that launched uh, a thousand uh, sculptures. Uh, she was quite a beauty in her time. This was the 19 teens. And uh, she was called the queen of the artist's models. And Miss Manhattan. Uh, and Miss Manhattan. And to me, you know, what could be more emblematic of a Miss Manhattan than a woman who was the first actress to star nude in motion pictures. In a non-pornographic film. Uh, they were art films, we can call them at the time. Uh, she was involved in a murder case. A doctor in Manhattan killed his wife, and apparently she was the doctor's love interest. She attempted suicide. Uh, she was committed to a mental institution. She lived into the 1990s until she was 104. She never received an obituary in the New York Times. What better model for a Miss Manhattan uh, than someone like Audrey Munson? I seemed perfectly fitting in my estimation, and that's why I included her in the book. Now, uh, do any of the films that she appeared in uh, exist? What was the plot of her 1915 film, Inspiration? Inspiration was sort of an autobiographical piece about a model uh, who poses and uh, poses uh, to make money to help her boyfriend, who is a poet. Uh, apparently, his poetry was not very good. Uh, her model posing was better. Uh, but one of the things that she said uh, uh, in a newspaper series uh, before she died was, uh, and I'll quote this, what becomes of the artist's model? Where is she now, this model who, who was so beautiful? What has been her last reward? Uh, is she happy and prosperous or sad and forlorn? Her beauty gone, leaving only memories in her wake. Well, you know, in the case of Audrey Munson, we weren't even left with the memories. Uh, her name was forgotten. Uh, again, she didn't get an obituary. And all we were left with is a face that's all over Manhattan, but which virtually no one today recognizes. A very different woman that you profile is Clara Lemlich, who was born in Western Ukraine. Oh, when her family moved to New York when she was 17, how did she find work? Well, she found work because she uh, it was easy for someone who was remotely talented as a seamstress to find work. Uh, and she found work because she was cheap. She was an immigrant. She was a Jewish immigrant. And like most Jewish and Italian immigrants, certainly at the time, she found work uh, in a sweatshop uh, on the Lower East Side. Uh, and of course, it was a non-union sweat, sweatshop. And Clara Lemlich, who spoke mostly Yiddish at the time, uh, defied not only the owners of the sweatshop, who were, you know, sort of the worst kind of people, I'm sorry to say, but she defied the white men who ran the garment workers union. Uh, they were kind of conservative in their own way. And Clara Lemla got up at a meeting at Cooper's union attended by Samuel Gompers and other union leaders 
and said, you know, we're tired of this. Uh, we're getting lousy wages. We're working way too long weeks. We need to go on strike. And maybe we as a union aren't ready for it. Maybe we as women in this union aren't ready to endure a cold winter. But in 1909, we need to go on strike. And she galvanized a strike of 20,000 garment workers union. And they won. Uh, they didn't, you know, win the war maybe, but they certainly won the battle. And uh, they got down to a 52 hour week. They set, uh, you know, great industrial standards. Uh, three years later, unfortunately, the Triangle Shirtwaist fire occurred, which was a real impetus to labor and uh, fire safety reform. Uh, but that strike was really the impetus for all sorts of labor uh, legislation, labor reform. And uh, Francis Perkins, who... Wait, it know, was called the Uprising of the 20,000. There were that many people involved? There were at least that many. Uh, you know, it's hard to count how many people were part-time and how many people joined the picket line as spectators. But 20,000 was not a exaggerated figure. Uh, so many people were in the garment center because that was one of the biggest industries in New York. Some of it was worked on at home, some of it in the sweatshops. Uh, but that was a major source of employment for new immigrants in the city, as to some extent it is today. Uh, and she was the largest motivating force. She was only in her early 20s, barely spoke English. And she had the gumption to get up and stand up not only to the employers, but to uh, the men leading her own union. I'm assuming that her English got better because she was involved in so many things. Did she achieve any success when she tried to organize a union of housewives? Uh, she did. She uh, actually achieved a lot of success in the rest of her life, not so much in getting a job because she was blackballed by the garment uh, owners, uh, but she did uh, organize uh, women in the city in terms of uh, boycotting butchers that charged too much money in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and even at the end of her life, when she was living in a nursing home, she uh, organized the nursing home workers and she organized uh, the workers and the residents of the nursing home to support the uh, farm workers union. She didn't stop until the very end of her life. Uh, she was committed to the very end. And, you know, it's one of those people you say, you know, maybe she was, uh, uh, you know, a zealot. But boy, do we need uh, some zealots for good causes uh, then and now. And she obviously was a, a, a an important figure. So why do you think she was forgotten? She's one of the people uh, who uh, whose obituary was included in that Overlook series I mentioned earlier in 2018. But that was 36 years after she died. That's right. Uh, there were other people who were prominent in the labor movement, uh, you know, there were union leaders who, who had a position in the union. There were people of greater prominence. There were socialites who came to the uh, aid of the union as well. Uh, but she was one of those people who sparked the rebellion, who helped lead the rebellion, who had the guts to set off the rebellion of the union workers. And she just, you know, got forgotten over the years. By the time she died, uh, Nobody remembered her. She had to fight for her pension from the union itself. And, you know, when she died, she just died in obscurity. And I thought, uh, as did the Times editors who uh, edited the overlooked uh, feature, thought that she deserved more than that. And that's why I included her in this book. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming at WBAI.org. Four hours. Yeah. Yeah, we never been here before. Ah, what can happen to you in one day? What do you think you're gonna do? I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Sam Roberts. Uh, if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of fifty dollars or more, 
you can receive a free copy of his book, The New Yorker's 31 Remarkable People, 400 Years, and the Untold Biography of the World's Greatest City. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And we return to Sam Roberts, who is a 50-year veteran of New York journalism, uh, currently the obituaries reporter at the New York Times. Did being the obituary reporter um, give you the idea of doing a book like this? Well, a little bit, yes. Uh, I uh, discovered in writing obituaries that what interested me most, first of all, I didn't like the idea of death. I'm not a death person. But then I realized that obituaries are really not about death. There's one sentence saying somebody died. But the obituaries in the Times and elsewhere are about people's lives. And honoring uh, people or remembering them. If, exactly. If they they are, but some people don't make it, as you point out. Well, it's a very subjective decision, uh, for better or for worse. There's only so much space. There's only so much staff. And a lot of people who deserve obituaries simply don't get them. And obviously, there's a lot of second guessing. And, you know, that's one of the uh, virtues of this overlooked uh, feature that we are finally able to uh, give some uh, due to the people who missed out the first time around. Uh, because, you know, how do you decide who gets one or not? Who's newsworthy? Who's important? Who's interesting? Uh, who had some impact? Who was transformative? Uh, who just is intrinsically has a story to tell? And frankly, when I do an obituary, I think everyone has a story. And if I can't find it, it's some deficiency on my part. Uh, and what I look for is, a, is an epiphany. What was it in the person's life that that changed them, that made them different, that made them worthy of an obituary that we should offer our readers. Uh, and I just find that fascinating. Uh, and it seems to happen in almost every person's life. Uh, I find, you know, when we found when we did our portraits of grief after 9-11 and those we've lost after the pandemic was that everyone has an interesting story. There are no no such thing as ordinary people. Uh, and wouldn't it be great if we could run more obituaries because so many people are just inherently interesting and lead interesting lives in their own way. When we did the those we've lost, we talked about school teachers, about traffic cops, about nurses, about so-called ordinary people and the impact they had on their own communities and what their lives meant to everyone else, the people who don't ordinarily get obituaries in the New York Times. And those series had a great deal of impact. For example, your last chapter, which is about Carmelia Goff and Brownsville, Brooklyn, which is farmland well into the 19th century. Wasn't it first developed by businessmen in the late 19th century who wanted to set up factories without using union labor? That's exactly right. Uh, you know, something we are not proud of today necessarily. Uh, but he did, and that was Brownsville. That was a neighborhood, in fact, where I grew up as a kid. Uh, a neighborhood that isn't all that different. It was lower middle class then. It is now. Uh, racially, demographically, uh, it is different. Uh, but other than that, it's the same neighborhood of striving people, the same neighborhood of immigrants or the sons and daughters or grandchildren of immigrants. And some uh, famous who, people like Alfred Kaysen, who wrote about growing up and then getting out right. of the neighborhood. Well, you know, it was a neighborhood then and, you know, to a large extent now that people grew up in trying to get out of or hoping to get out of and find something better for themselves and certainly, if not for themselves, than for the children. And that was the story of Carmela Goff uh, in this lap ch last chapter of the book. Uh, emblematic of, of immigrants, uh, emblematic of the immigrants who always, from the 1600s to today, were absolutely uh, crucial in revitalizing this city, this city of a churning population, this city of people coming and going, 
Uh, I begin the book with a quote from E.B. White, uh, and I think it's as relevant uh, when he said it as today, saying no one should come to New York to live unless he is willing to be lucky. And all of the people in this book were willing to be lucky, and almost all of them, interestingly enough, came from somewhere else. They were either migrants from other cities or immigrants from other countries, all of them hoping to succeed more in New York than they would have where they came from. And Carmilla Goff was one of those people. She was a uh, conductor on the New York City subway system, uh, and she wanted to build a better life. She lived in Brownsville. She lived in one of the projects, Van Dyke Houses, which was a pretty miserable place to live, crime-ridden, broken elevators, no heat, uh, lots of services that uh, should have been provided and weren't although built under the best of intentions as a public housing project, uh, and bought a uh, house, the Nehemiah houses that were built by East Brooklyn congregations, a uh, coalition of, of churches, uh, nonprofit institutions under the uh, umbrella of uh, uh, what was in Saul Alinsky's Industrial Areas Foundation, she bought this house for $49,000, a single family home in Brownsville. Today, it's worth over $500,000. Now, and, the Van Dyke projects where she was, she grew up, um, uh, well, actually, one third of Brownsville residents uh, lived in, in public housing. They were built very tall in order to provide as much open space as possible. How did those good intentions lead to a high crime rate? Well, Leonard, you know, again, it's the cost of good intention. Someone had the bright idea, let's build them real tall so we can have more open space between them. Well, you know, build them real tall so nobody knew each other's neighbors. Uh, they were dark. They were scary. You could only get to them by elevators. Uh, there were no, you know, outside uh, hallways. These were all dark hallways. Uh, the stairways were, you know, often uh, without lights. Uh, people were isolated. Uh, they now the Nehemiah homes are single-family homes, uh, two stories. Not a very efficient way of building public housing, but certainly in their case, uh, people knew their next-door neighbors. They were eyes on the street, uh, the kind of thing that Jane Jacobs talked about uh, in her books, uh, and they prevented crime in a way that uh, giant tall high-rise uh, public housing could not possibly do uh, with all the best intentions of having some open space in between them, with having some neighborhood associations. It just wasn't possible from uh, a standpoint of physical construction and architectural appearances, even though that's why they were built that way. Uh, it took uh, years of uh, you know anthropology to, to figure out what went wrong, and unfortunately, it did go wrong. Many African-Americans settled in the area. Uh, was that because these were people who seemed completely without hope? I think so. I mean, people came to Brownsville originally. The, the Jews from the Lower East Side and other parts of the city came there with some degree of hope. Uh, they came to get out of the Lower East Side, the slums and the tenements that were there, to get into better housing. Uh, they left the Brownsville area to find even better housing because Brownsville obviously was deteriorating too. It was becoming more poor. Uh, and as soon as people, as you said earlier, could get out, they did. They moved to the suburbs. They moved to Queens. They moved to other parts of the city that they could afford. Uh, it's always been an upwardly mobile area. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing is, in this day and age, with inflation, with uh, the uh, surfeit of uh, only low-skilled jobs, to keep it an up upwardly mobile area, to have the job training, to have the uh, resources to make it so that people could move on in society and get higher paid jobs with a better education and move on to other areas, uh, especially as areas, not necessarily Brownsville, because it has such a high proportion of public housing, but as other areas uh, gentrify and it becomes harder for poorer people, uh, working class people to afford. 
And Goff wanted to leave the projects but not the neighborhood, so she moved to a walk-up apartment with no heat, even though she had three sons to consider. That's right. I mean, people become accustomed to the neighborhood. They, they uh, are familiar with some of their neighbors. Uh, and she had a commitment to the neighborhood. And, you know, a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't have the same emotional stake as they might have in other times. She did. She became head of the uh, Brooklyn, the Brownsville Nehemiah Neighborhood Association, and she really committed herself. And she, and uh, and she that organized was the groups, right, uh, including a, uh, the local church group, didn't she, to uh, revive the neighborhood? Yeah, the church group, and that was the whole point behind East Brooklyn congregations, to give people an ownership stake in their housing. So they weren't just renters, they weren't just passing through they, they weren't just uh, itinerants, but this was theirs. They owned it. They had a stake in it. They had a stake in preserving it and maintaining it, and not just their house, but the neighborhood. Uh, and I think that was a very important element in, uh, in the comeback of neighborhoods like Brownsville and the revitalization of them and the desire of newer immigrants to move into and repopulate neighborhoods like that that were written off not all that long ago. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Sam Roberts. His book, The New Yorkers, 31 Remarkable People, 400 Years, The Untold Biography of the World's Greatest City, published by Bloomsbury. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Didn't Goff's organization, Industrial Areas Foundation, have a contentious relationship with then Mayor Ed Koch? Uh, well, he had contentious relations with an, any number of people. So yes, uh, he did because uh, Ed Koch, I'm sorry. Including me at one point. Uh, yeah, well, good to your credit. He didn't like uh, some questions I asked him once. <laughs> only once? You got away easy, Leonard. Uh, he deserves a lot of credit for what he finally did about low-income housing and the fact that he made... Uh, a lot of the housing that had been seized by the city for uh, non-payment of taxes available uh, to various community groups to uh, rehabilitate. And he also finally helped uh, East Brooklyn congregations build the Nehemiah Housing Project. Uh, he was in contention with uh, the people at the Industrial Areas Foundation, Mike Geekin and people like that, because they didn't uh, bow to public officials. They said, you know, we elected you. Uh, you're not in charge. Uh, we're the people. You are our representatives. And we're here to set the agenda. Uh, and elected officials, not just Koch by any means, didn't necessarily like that. They were used to being deferred to. And, uh, you know, Saul Alinsky, who had founded the Industrial Areas Foundation, learned as a student, a graduate student growing up in Chicago, learned, believe it or not, uh, about uh, interpersonal relations from Al Capone uh, and learned that uh, you have to be tough and you have to stand up and you don't make permanent alliances with people. You, you are transactional and that's how you get things done. And, you know, they had enormous patience. They took their time. They didn't look for, you know, short-term heroes. Uh, they organized carefully and patiently, and they got a lot of things accomplished, uh, whether it was getting street signs, whether it was building housing, whether it was getting schools fixed, uh, and they deserve an enormous amount of credit for that. And Goff became head of the local homeowners association, representing over a thousand homes. Is Brownsville experiencing some of the gentrification that we're seeing in Williamsburg and Bushwick? Leonard, it is, but to a much lesser extent, I think. Uh, you'd have to go uh, block by block because, you know, of course, neighbors in the city are really blocks. But one of the things that mitigates against it, as I mentioned, is that there is still uh, a large uh, proportion of public housing in the neighborhood. And that sort of precludes large gentrification. I think it will overcome that. Uh, and we see a lot of building going on. And you know, some smaller scale building too. But uh, given the planned rezoning in the city and the, the thirst for affordable housing and therefore new housing, I think we will see uh, 
virtually every neighborhood in the city, uh, as awful as they may have looked in the 70s and 80s and even the early 90s, uh, making a comeback. When you look at the South Bronx and it coming back in many respects, uh, you see, you know, with all the griping right now about uh, graffiti and crime and, you know, garbage on the street, look back and think for a minute if you were able to or old enough to in the 1970s and 80s, and the city is in a heck of a lot better shape now than it was back then. I mentioned earlier that you also wrote about Tex and Jinx Falkenberg. Um, I guess that they are among the only other really famous uh, people in this book. Um, why them? Well, the, Tex, you subtitled a, the chapter "The Birth of Celebrity." Well, Tex the McQuarrie and James Falkenberg sort of invented celebrity talk radio. They weren't the first. There were others, uh, Ed and Pagin Fitzgerald, Dorothy and Dick, uh, others who I'm sure some you of know, you... You know, I co-hosted a show with Pagin. Oh, really? How neat. That must have been fascinating. Near the end of her life. And and they were all great. But what Tex and Jinx did was bring, bring a sort of level of gravitas to talk radio uh, that may not have been there before. They brought interesting people. They brought Bernard Baruch. Uh, they brought uh, political figures, cultural figures uh, that really hadn't been interviewed uh, on radio before and subsequently television. Uh, they were beyond celebrity. Uh, they made celebrities of interesting, serious people. And I think they persuaded broadcast executives that this was something that people, ordinary listeners and ultimately viewers were sophisticated enough to want to hear. And they also, I think, proved that a woman, uh, you know, uh, uh, could uh, could interview people as effectively or in some cases more effectively than a man could. Um, she was terrific. She was so smart. She was, you know, kind of uh, denigrated as sort of a... Uh, um, a figure who wasn't all that sophisticated, but she was as smart as a whip and used that image to uh, wheedle answers out of people who never would have answered the kind of questions had they been posed by a man because she played dumb a little bit and she was anything but. We haven't had time to discuss all 31 of your subjects. In the little time we have left, which is about two and a half minutes or so, are there any others you would have liked to have discussed or you want to mention? Well, Leonard, one of my favorite was uh, Elizabeth Jennings. Uh, she was a school teacher uh, in uh, a black school in New York City. The schools, of course, segregated in the middle of the 19th century. She was late one Sunday morning for playing the organ at her church on the Lower East Side. She hailed a trolley, the Third Avenue trolley. The conductor threw her off because it was a whites-only trolley. She was black. And she sued. She hired a young attorney named Chester Arthur. He later became the president of the United States. Chester Allen Arthur. To, she went to Brooklyn Supreme Court, and she won her case. The court awarded her $225, which was almost as much as her annual salary as a teacher. And the judge said, you can't bar someone who's respectable, black or white, from public transportation. And this was a hundred years before um, Rosa Parks. And everybody forgot it. She never got an obituary. She was forgotten. She's, you know, missing from histories of the city, including by black historians. And I thought that in this book, she certainly deserved uh, the uh, recognition that was long overdue. I've been speaking with Sam Roberts, who is a 50-year veteran of New York journalism currently the obituaries reporter at the New York Times. Uh, he also hosts the New York Times close-up on CUNY TV, and he's written a number of books about New York history. The latest, The New Yorkers, 50, 31 Remarkable People, 400 Years in the Untold Biography of the World's Greatest City, published by Bloomsbury. Uh, I really want to thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, because these are really interesting people, and uh, they're part of what made this city great. Or, well, not by the way, not everybody loves New York. We should point that out too. Right, but it's a, still the greatest city in the world. Thank you for saying that, and thank you so much for being on our show, Leonard. Thank you for inviting me. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And I hope you'll check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. New York may be the greatest city in the world, but WBAI has to struggle to keep itself alive because it has decided to be as pure as possible to just rely on listener support. We don't take any foundation grants. Uh, We don't uh, run fake ads, which we call funding credits. We just rely on our listeners to come through for us. So we're asking you if you have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 212. 209-2950 209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need to help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, the information you usually don't get anywhere else and I guarantee you, you learned an awful lot on today's show, for example, things you wouldn't have heard otherwise. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution to $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Lords right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The New Yorkers, 31 Remarkable People, 400 Years, and the Untold Biography of the World's Greatest City by Sam Roberts. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org and you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for 10, 15, 20, 25, however many dollars a month you feel comfortable helping us with to help us to plan for the future, to know that there'll be cash flow next month and the month after, and you can keep that going as long as you wish, and we will say thank you with a tote bag, a WBAI tote bag, to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because, as I said, BAI relies totally on listener donations. Uh, We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to hear this show, why not let us know that you appreciate what you do what we do by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one that New York Radio Dallas 100% listeners sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when Cody Keenan, who is Barack Obama's speechwriter, will discuss his new book called Grace. We'll see you then. <laughs>